Linux Out Loud is firing off our mics, connecting those headphones as we search the community for themes to expound upon. We keep the banner friendly, the conversation well, somewhat on topic, and have fun doing it. This week, we are spouting off about luring the AUR to other Linux distros. Let's get into episode 36. Linux Out Loud is brought to you by DigitalOcean and Bitwarden. And with me today, we have the person with two totally unhealthy obsessions, and that is OpenSUSE and the Commodore 64, <laughs> Nate, and our photographer extraordinaire for the network, Wendy. What's going on, guys? Not much. I wouldn't call it totally unhealthy. I mean, maybe some area of concern, but I wouldn't call it totally unhealthy. At least not yet. Nate, in fairness, even Martin Wimpers liked that on Twitter. <laughs> And about a dozen other people. I'm not the only <laughs> one then. I'm just saying. It doesn't mean it's a fair assessment. Okay, fine, whatever. It's your world. I'm just living in it. Doesn't mean it's an <laughs> inaccurate assessment either. That's true. Nate, while I have been on Twitter poking at your unhealthy obsessions, it seems like you have certain things that have been misbehaving and I don't mean me on Twitter. Yes, I have a GTK app. I don't use it all that often. So when I do use it, it's nice if it's readable. And it seems like very often GTK apps kind of... I don't know, it's like theming is chronically broken. And it could be just because of the way things have changed and shifted and maybe the apps aren't staying caught up. I don't know what the problem is. But anyway, this application called TILP, it's a Texas Instruments Management Program. So like for the Texas Instruments calculators, the graphing calculators, you can plug into it and like pull things off and on and so forth. And so I want to pull some things off my TI-86 from uh, 1998 and... The application, I couldn't see the buttons because they were like such low contrast between the background and the icon itself and the field that it's sitting in. So just kind of irritating. I couldn't read it. So I thought, well, maybe there's a way you can force a specific theme for a GTK app. So I downloaded some other GTK apps, just a, maybe one that would look you know, decent. And uh, the one I, I settled on was Wally Bear. Just I like the name and I like the coloring, uh, not necessarily how they did the widgets and whatnot, but that doesn't matter. But I could not actually get the theme to present itself. So I'd run gtk underscore theme equals Wally Bear and then the application name, location, user bin, TILP, but yet it would still load in the wrong way. I can go into the plasma settings and force the theme there, but that's globally and I don't want the theme globally enforced just on that one. I even tried some other things too that didn't work the way I was hoping. So this is more or less a call out to people in the community. If you know how to force while using plasma, a specific GTK theme for just one application that actually works, that would be great because nothing that I found so far actually works. And that'd be super helpful for me and of course to other people who might end up having the same problem. I think that's one of the downsides of using Plasma is there really are some great GTK applications on there, but the theming doesn't always play very nice. And I do have mine set to a dark theme. We've talked about the before. Dark theme is my favorite thing mm -hmm. ever. Yep. Samesies, as the kids <laughs> say. And just like not all websites play well with Dark Reader. Not all GTK apps play well with a Qt-based desktop environment. And it seems like in general that Qt plays a little bit better with a GTK desktop environment, but it's been a really, really long time since I've run one. So I wouldn't say for sure that's absolutely the case, but I do know that there are some great GTK apps. I just don't always like the way 
they look, even though the functionality is amazing. Yeah, I'm kind of in that same boat. I really like how they function, but the way they look is just not exactly what I care for. And I think especially GTK4 apps are much worse as far as how they look yeah. and how they integrate. I know that it'll get worked out in time. It's just a thing. It's, it's not a huge thing. I can make it work. It's just irritating. I think the application needs a total rewrite and use Qt as opposed to GTK. That would make my life a lot easier, but you know, what can you do? I guess you can go write an app into QT. I could write an app. Guess you're going to have to turn that app into a QT app, Nate. Probably wouldn't be too hard. I mean, it is open source. I just have to read the code and then start working on the cute stuff. But yeah, where's the time for that? Exactly. And there's some things that are like, oh yeah, it's going to be super easy. I remember taking scratch code and trying to transition that into Python code for the robot. And sometimes things don't necessarily necessarily translate well how they were originally laid out before so there's some tweaks and changes and stuff that needs to be made in order to make it work so it's one of those things i am sure sounds like i got this at the beginning but when you get into it especially depending on the program itself can probably be a bit of a pain and i know you are incredibly busy too with the kids you have the other side hustles you have going on plus school's back in session and i know exactly what that's like especially for us where our kids are with us all the time yep if i want to make a change i can't complain unless i do a little contributions myself be the change you want to see nate that's right Thank you. Doo, 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 doo. The more you know. Yo, Joe. <laughs> Not to get tough. Yo, Joe. The other one. So speaking of programming, Wendy, I see that you need to finish your Python cheat sheets for the kids. You're going to help your kids cheat? What is this? I am going to help <laughs> them cheat. No, they're not actually cheating. They finally got their robot finish built on our Friday session. So we're to the point we're now meeting twice a week for robotics. Thursday during co-op and then... Friday for an additional couple hours just because we don't have enough time in our original two-hour block. We have a scrimmage coming up with another local FFL team here in just a couple weeks, and so we need to be getting on that. They need to actually have some code written for their robot. And it can be a bit overwhelming when you're first starting to write out your code and, okay, I have this motor, but what can I do with this motor? What are the original commands that I need in order to write that in the code? And that's basically what these cheat sheets are going to be. It's going to say, okay, my motor pair, I can run it in start tank. I can run it in tank. I can just tell it to start. I can tell it to move. And then... What are the different things that I need to add after that in order to get my robot to do exactly what I want it to do? On Friday last week, the other mentor had to run back to her house and get the robot. So I had a little bit of time with the kids before they actually got to finish building it. And we started going over the basic foundations of starting writing that code. And I can tell like by the look on their faces that they were a bit overwhelmed at first. Especially when you're comparing that to what they were doing last year in Scratch. And so this is just going to be a quick way for when they're writing things out for them to be able to glance at a sheet, one that's specifically for a motor or a specific sensor and to be able to see, oh, okay, this is the way I need to write it out. And then this is the different additional information that I need to add after that and how it's supposed to be formatted so that they can get their code written in 
the least amount of time, but them still being able to do it mostly on their own. And so this cheat sheet's going to provide like the knowledge gaps that we typically have. They probably already understand the concepts. If I just don't know the actual implementation piece, is that to kind of smooth over the implementation part of it? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's to help with the implementation part of it so they can see what their different options are, their coding options are for a specific piece of hardware that they're using. Because with the color sensors, for instance, you can use them to sense a specific color, but you can also use them to tell you how much light is being reflected back. And in some cases, that actually seems to work better, especially depending on where they are on the robot or for different things you're trying to do with the robot. Say at this time, I'm wanting it to stop at a specific color, but later I'm wanting it to follow a line. And in that case, it using amount of light reflected back is better. And so them just being able to see how do I write those different things out in the code without having to dive into it somewhere else on the Lego website or whatnot. And a quick glance, oh, yep, that's the way it's going. Yes, I'm doing it right. And just help them get the code written with as few, where do I find this information stops. Yeah, that makes total sense. I'd be lying to you if I didn't tell you that I created numerous cheat sheets for myself so I can remember how to do different things in the terminal. Right? I mean, they are extremely helpful, especially when you have multiple commands Mm -hmm. inside of something. I've used cheat sheets multiple times when I was first learning how to use... Oh, goodness sake. Now I can't remember what it's called. What we write our show notes in. Hedgehog. Yes, but we use... A markdown? Yes, markdown. So just remembering the basic rules of markdown, some of the basic stuff when it comes to that. Cheat sheets are awesome when you're starting to learn something. And heck, I still find them nice when I'm working on the code, especially if it's a command that I don't use very often to make sure that I'm inputting it properly because there's nothing worse than thinking you got it. And you're like, crap, what is wrong here? Cheat sheets to help us in the process of A, learning how to use Python and B, to help speed up the process of them writing their code. Because like I said, time is short and I would like to at least have part of our run started when we go to do our scrimmage here the last week of October. So holy crap, that's really coming up. Yes, it is. So I don't freak people out. I call them cut sheets. Not that I think you should rename it, because I don't think you should rename it at all. But I'm just saying sometimes, like depending upon the crowd, I'll call them cut sheets. You know, you're going to have those individuals that are really particular about not cheating. You know what I'm talking about? You know, you know Yeah. It has a negative connotation to yes. it when you say cheat sheet. Yeah. Right? For those special people, I will call them cut sheets so that they don't complain to me later. Very good idea. Maybe the people on your side of the state are a little bit better about about such things than over here. Uh, (laughs) It depends on the person. We have a little bit of everybody in our homeschool co-op. Yeah. Sometimes the everybody's aren't exactly the everybody's I'd like to, but yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. Mm hmm. Agreed. (laughs) (laughs) Matt, last week you were telling us all about the computer that you wanted to get. And I am surprised by this news, but you are already down your main desktop. How is that transition going? I am very much down to my main desktop as far as not having a main desktop anymore, I should say. Over the last few months, I've mentioned a few times that I'm just kind of cleaning out things. So right now I am literally sitting on two computers. That's it. Nothing more. 
I have a Asus Tough Slim 15 from last year that I bought, and I have the Steam Deck. Really? That's the only computing devices I currently have as far as like actual computers. That is amazing. What is yeah. it like only having two computers? A uh, whole lot more space. <laughs> and somebody said to me, his name's Adam, that the Steam Deck does not qualify as a computer because it has thumbsticks. It does when it's got a dock and I have a keyboard and mouse hooked up. Like, I'm just saying what he said. If it has thumbsticks and you're staring at those thumbsticks, then it's not a computer. I'm not staring at those thumbsticks because the Steam Deck's off to the side. (laughs) So mouse and keyboard are in front of me when I'm using the Steam Deck. But look, I didn't make this up, but I think you only have one computer and a Steam Deck, which is a console. Not currently how I'm using it. Okay. Does it count as a console if you are able to get actual work done on it? Because we do have a couple consoles in the living room, and I'm pretty sure on those I wouldn't be doing show notes or anything like that on it, but he can do that on the Steam Deck. So here's the thing. Mm. Wendy's right with the Steam Deck portion because it depends on where side of the Steam Deck you're on. <laughs> And you know exactly what I mean when I say this. So right now, the Steam Deck is in desktop mode. So therefore, it is a computer. If I put it back to the Deck UI, it is therefore then a console. All right. So I hear what you're saying. Then let's say I put a desktop operating system of some kind on a PlayStation 4. It's still a console. It's a PlayStation 4 console. It just happens to be doing desktop functions. So here's the thing. You can actually install Linux distros on a PlayStation 4. Right, but it's still a console. It's not a computer. No, because the computer is an x86 thing. PlayStation 4 is an x86 piece of technology, so therefore, does it compute? Yes. Okay, well, I mean... A cell phone or a tablet is considered a computer, too. They do computing things. But you wouldn't call them computers. They're cell phones and tablets. I would consider them a computing device, so... Right, but not a computer. Because you said you only have two computers. Okay, if you want to go for the full <laughs> technical route, then yeah, okay, I have five computing devices. Is that better? No, no. How many computers do you have? I think it's just one, a laptop. <laughs> Nate, this is like the Steam OS debate that we always constantly have. Anyway. But you're wrong about the Steam OS thing. It's still large. Get over it. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yes, I'm slamming my head into the desk at the moment. Funk, funk. It's going to leave a bruise. (laughs) I have two computing devices that primarily focus on Linux in a desktop variety, if that is what you're inferring, Nate. That better? You know, however you want to slice this turkey, that's totally fine. I'm just pointing out your logical fallacy, but that's all right. Keep going. Kind of like your logical fallacy of denying that you're in an unhealthy obsession with OpenSUSE, but we'll... Yeah, that's neither here nor there. I'll let it go. (laughs) So right now, I'm just waiting for the mini forums. I think it's the Neptune HX... 90G or something. I can't remember the full game for it to actually ship. Uh, they're not shipping those out until November. So figured get used to having a little more space. That's the biggest thing. And it's not the most ideal situation because like when I called in for this particular show, my mic decided to default to the laptop mic, which anybody who's used laptop mics know well, they're garbage. <laughs> So. Yeah, they are not good. And when you first joined, I'm like, holy crap, what the heck happened to Matt? Like, this does not sound like normal Matt. Other than that, once I got that straightened out and getting the initial setup stuff rearranged, because generically, this machine's yeah. pretty much just been a gaming machine. It's just one of those getting everything reacclimated to do more production stuff on it. So, and more limited amount of USB ports. Luckily, I have a USB-C dongle from the uh, Pine phone that I'm actually using currently <laughs> to have some more USB ports. Nice. 
This episode of Linux Out Loud is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Cloud computing can be, let's say, complex. But standing up reliable, affordable cloud infrastructure really doesn't have to be. At DigitalOcean, you can enjoy a comprehensive portfolio of compute, storage, database, and networking products that put your cloud infrastructure in capable hands so you and your teams can get back to doing what matters most, building world-changing apps that grow your business. Predictable pricing, robust product docs, and services that developers love. That's DigitalOcean. Get support at every stage of growth, from teams of one to teams of 1,000 with simple, powerful cloud computing. Get growing with DigitalOcean. Listeners of Linux Out Loud and members of the Tux Digital community can get started for free. In fact, better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 credit when you sign up at do.co slash tux2022. That's do.co slash tux2022. Make sure you get started with your $100 free credit at DigitalOcean and their awesome cloud platform by going to do.co slash tux2022. And thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Linux Out Loud. Speaking of things like the Steam Deck that uses Arch, which Nate has a total obsession with right now, and his favorite thing is the AUR, but it's also coming to his other favorite thing that he has a totally unhealthy obsession with, and that's OpenSUSE. How do you feel about the AUR potentially being able to come to OpenSUSE? I don't think the AUR will ever come to OpenSUSE. <laughs> and I don't know that I would trust it because, I mean, what kind of QA goes on in the AUR? I hope you like reading bill packages. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have tons of time to read build packages. That, I want to put that on my list of things I want to do. You tell about this expansion of the AUR, or is it? There is a repository. I'm really not sure how to really describe what this is, honestly. it's. I would basically say that it is a tool that helps you use universal style package that can be turned into a local package for whichever distribution that you like to use. That's not a flat pack or a snap. It's not flat pack, snap, or app image. It's for those that want native packages and kind of the AUR-ness of things. The best way I can explain this particular repository is called Lure, L-U-R-E. The only thing I can find a kind of direct comparison to is the way Solus builds from, let's say, like the deb files and stuff and builds like EPKOG files for Solus. But this does it more like in a make package or a build package and then turns that into a native package for, say, a deb or an RPM or yum or zipper or dnf or you know insert the nine thousand other different local native package managers that they're available i think six you know what i mean <laughs> Nate. but then it, what it does is it makes it so that all those packages when lore gets updated all those other packages that have been converted and installed as native packages also get updated so it's a really interesting way to kind of bring in kind of the one perk that I personally think of when it comes to the AUR and that's package availability, because that is something that is not always the easiest thing for some distros. Things like using Solus as the example. Solus is very curated at times with what's available, what's not. 
Um, there are other distros that also float in that end of the sphere. Things like Chaos or KOS, however you want to pronounce that, that have very limited repos for whatever reasons they might have. This I find as a really intriguing way to kind of get around that and still have native packages. So without having to jump through extra hoops to deal with some of the other secondary package managers that you need to with like Flatpak and Snaps and App Images mm-hmm. and all the other stuff. I think that is probably the biggest thing that I really like about this potential that this has. Yeah. And I think the best way to think about it is I do love the AUR for exact same reason is availability. And I feel like I've got so many more applications at my fingertips that I need. And I'm not saying that the other universal packages are bad. I think there's positives and negatives to Flatpak, Snaps, and App Images. But when we're thinking about the AUR, the Arch User Repository, really it is a collection of packages from their source or at their source. And then I prefer Yum, but then I can pull images from the AUR and it builds them and it works pretty smooth. There are some issues when it comes to pulling in some of the different options from the AUR. I know there's times where I'm like, yeah, this version of it works and that version of it doesn't. We went over that when I was talking about setting up a VR headset on something like Manjaro and making sure to use the Git version of a particular package and whatnot. So I'm not saying that lore itself would be entirely smooth because when you do have contributions like that, there can be its own positives and negatives, stuff that gets dropped, stuff that doesn't get updated. You do have to be a little bit more careful about what you're installing, right? One of the advantages of getting something directly from your repo or from the Snap Store or something from Flatpak is you are trusting those venues, more trust in them, that they are watching for things that would be trying to steal your privacy, collect your data, have stuff in it that it's not supposed to have. And the AUR, something like the AUR, is a little bit more open and you, the person using it, have to check it, you're more likely to run into conflicts with an update because of packages that you're pulling in. So I can still see this as being a positive and negative that way. But I've been using LibreOffice as a flat pack, and I am ready to uninstall it. And it's not because the application isn't working. It's running like normal. The downside that I'm having is that the theming is off. And even though I should be able to go into the separate themes in the settings for LibreOffice and help fix that, because I've done that before in the native packaging, it's not working in the Flatpak version with my dark themes. And so the main upper bar is darker gray, but all of my symbols are still darker. And so it's just harder to see because there's not the contrast there. And in the native package, I've been able to make it so the bands themselves, that top bar is dark, and then the different options, the different symbols on those options are light. So there's the contrast there, and it's really easy to find what you're looking for. So I'd say that overall, like, this is really, really cool. You related it to Alien earlier, too, as something for Debian, where you could take, like, an RPM package and turn it into a Deb, and I'm sure it's for the exact same thing. That's been one of the complaints 
complaints about Debian is not necessarily not having applications available, but the packages that are available are much older versions. And this is a way to get some of those newer versions of that. Will it work? I don't know, but I'm liking where they're going with this. I like the idea of this. Yeah, I think this is a good thing. I don't know how much I would necessarily want to use it. I think this would be like my, if I can't get it with native packages, I can't get it with a flat pack or snap or app image. This would probably be my fourth choice because typically speaking, a universal package will have been tested or have some sort of a QA has gone through it, even if it's just the developer testing it himself against maybe a couple different distributions or whatever. There's some kind of QA process. With OpenSUSE, I got the OpenQA that does a lot of the testing for you. So that's why I prefer that, those packages ultimately. The idea of having like the ability to get packages from anywhere, like as a, you know, I can pull in from source or whatever. I'm not really sure where that repo exists. If the default repo is just that, like if there's not much there right now, that's fine. So I don't know at this point how much I would use it. I like the idea of having this kind of a distribution method for software. I do know someone, I think we'll just call him Paul, that he doesn't like universal packages for things. He would rather build it from source himself because he wants to actually see how it's built. And he really likes that about Arch, although now he uses OpenSUSE. And he likes that he can look at the software before it's built and, and, and so forth. This would be very ideal for someone like Paul because it would just work better for the way he likes to work. This is a good thing. I don't see any downsides to this existing. I think this is something that should exist because it's another avenue to get software that does fit some other use cases. And the fact that you can manage the software that's installed by Lure with Zipper, it's an OpenSUSE or DNF and, and Fedora, just makes it all that much better. So somehow, I was reading through the documentation, somehow it creates the entry into the RPM database or whatever that DNF or Zipper would use to be able to manage the application too. So if let's say I install something with Lure, I can then remove it with zipper, everything will be fine. The other thing I think is also very cool is if I want to remove something with Lure and it's a native package that wasn't installed by Lure, it can also manage that database as well and remove that package. Let's say I said Lure remove Firefox, but I didn't install it through Lure, it can still remove it. Like another way of pulling controls and whatnot accessible to you as well. So right now you can do install, remove, upgrade, pull info, list, build, add repo, remove repo, and refresh. Those are the commands that exist right now with Lure. But again, it's in an alpha stage at 0.0.2. So obviously more things are going to happen with it. But nonetheless, I think this is very cool. And I think I want to try this out just to see how it works. Maybe not on my main rig, but probably on a alternate computer. I mean, to be fair, I already install extra repos on my Fedora system. I pretty much cannot use a Fedora system without RPM Fusion. It supplies a lot of the packages that I can't get directly from Fedora. And I use the AUR I wouldn't say frequently like you. It's probably the last resort that I pull from. I would much rather get it from my main repository, but I've just not had really great experiences with some of the other universal packages. Overall, I've had really good luck with app images, but the downside of them is they don't update. And the person, the developer for Laura, I think has spent a lot of time really thinking about how can I make this easy for the user? And it's just like that your regular package manager can handle those packages once installed. It's one of the things that I love about the AUR is that once that package is built and in my system, I can still uninstall it using Pacman. I don't have to use yeah in order to do that. 
Now, if I want to upgrade things from the AUR, I typically need to run the yeah command in order to get that done, which in running that and a system upgrade, it actually does both for me. So I typically don't do the Pac-Man version of update. I do the yeah version of update. This to me does feel like yeah for every other distribution. Well, I think one thing I like about it is potentially you could use this so you didn't have to use Pac-Man to manage packages on an Arch system. That I think would be kind of cool. That could definitely be a way to go because I agree with you that while there are things I absolutely love about Arch-based distros and the AUR, I do think the way they have Pac-Man written as far as how you install, uninstall those different commands are very unintuitive. And that's one of the reasons why I absolutely love DNF. I mean, really, how easy it to say DNF install, DNF remove, DNF update. Like that makes so much sense instead of Pac-Man attack capital S lowercase y, lowercase u. Right, exactly. Which is why I won't use Arch. <laughs> Though you do. Nope, I use SteamOS. Uh, no, I'm definitely on the same boat. I think this is a very interesting project and the fact that the updating is able to do it through the native package manager because I know when you install like something like a deb from just like a random downloaded deb, it doesn't have that same ability. It's an orphaned or explicitly installed deb and the fact that these will auto update based on the native package manager is a really interesting thing to see and the fact that it's basically distro agnostic or at least the attempt is distro agnostic is really really cool too really interested to see where this goes whether or not it gains traction or not who knows but if you want to contribute or help or even try the website will be down in the show notes let us know what you guys think in the comment section and you can also get a hold of us on the discourse forums or discord and irc there's matrix kind of sort of <laughs> Let us know what you guys think, if this is something that interests you, or if you have no interest, or are you all about app image snaps, flat packs, or do you prefer your native and only native? This episode of Linux Out Loud is sponsored by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the password manager that we use and trust. Bitwarden lets you set up things like a pin to easily access your password manager, as well as additional authentication, such as master passwords and adding phrases to fingerprint security, all to keep your passwords safe. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync sensitive data. Go to bitwarden.com tux to get started for free. Make the smart move like many from the community and have a go at bitwarden.com tux to get started for free. If you're like me, though, you'll want to show your appreciation by signing up for the premium edition, especially since the premium edition starts at only $10 a year. And for that $10 premium account, you'll get things like one gigabyte encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F and Duo, Vault Health Reports, and so much more. Also, you'll get priority customer support, huh? Thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of Linux Out Loud. So while we're making recommendations of new and interesting ways to try package management and stuff on Linux distros that, well, <laughs> really weren't developed for them, 
Nate, you're busy playing around with a windmill? I am. This is a vertical access windmill electric turbine that I bought a while ago. And I set it up in like a test bench in my cubicle labs to just see what kind of power I can get out of it. So I bought basically some two inch PVC. I had to score the top of it to get the thing to go on the thing and, and whatever. So I hooked my meter up to it, spinning the windmill around. And maybe because the meter is not able to, assuming that the windmill is pulsing the electric out like an alternator would. Maybe I'm not getting the correct actual reading, but I'm not getting the voltages I was anticipating out of it. So I'm going to hook up my oscilloscope to it and see if maybe that will give me a more clear picture as to what's going on. But ultimately what I'd like to do is, you know, I have solar on my house now. When the sun goes down here in Michigan, which it, now it's pretty much down for 12 plus hours a day, it seems like. I've only got like eight good hours of sun, basically. When the sun goes down, it's usually pretty windy here. You know, where I live in, in Michigan, it's pretty darn windy. So it'd be nice if I could offset some of my power usage or power requirements with a windmill. And I'd like to test this out, see how it goes. And I, but I want to make sure I size the inverter correctly to the windmill and get the right voltage and whatnot. I could use some, something like a boost converter if necessary to get the voltage closer to where I want it. On the other hand, if the whole thing doesn't produce the amount of power I need, I'll be spending all this money. I don't see a clear return on investment if it's not going to generate the amount of power I'm hoping. In which case, I might scrap it or modify it to have another motor on it, essentially. Go to like some sort of like thrift store, like, like a Goodwill or Salvation Army. Get an old fan motor a ceiling fan motor. I could probably use that. Potentially, you know, get more power out of it that way as well. I mean, from a mechanical perspective, it's fine. I think from an electrical perspective, I'm not sure about it right now. So uh, something else I'm toying with here in hopes that I can reduce my grid dependence of my property. Wind is one of those things in Idaho. We've got lots of wind farms around here where they do seem to be struggling to get out of them what they've put into them. You said you're not sure if it's delivering AC or DC current? It's not delivering AC current. It's supposed to be DC. It's supposed to be 12 volts, so it's supposed to output. But I'm getting like 8 to 10 volts. I don't know if that's because it's pulsing 12 volts DC, and then my meter is, is picking up like the root mean squared of it or whatever, or something like that. But it's not getting mm, yeah. the peak. I want to hook it up to an oscilloscope to see what it's really doing. Look at the waveform itself. I'm curious about that. And then the other thing you might be running into is a faulty part in it if you're not actually getting the voltage that you're supposed to be getting. That could be also, yeah. Or maybe it's a piece of garbage. You've actually had this for quite a while though, haven't you? I have. And I really haven't taken the time to, to figure it out. From the mechanical perspective, it's fine. It works. Just maybe from electrical, I might have to make some modifications. That's all. Yeah, absolutely. And it would be nice to be able to supplement the solar power at night with something like this. One of the advantages of nighttime, or at least most of nighttime, is you're asleep. So the overall power demands of the house go down. Other than that window between when it gets dark and when everybody goes to bed and you have the lights on. So that would be really cool if you can figure out how to have this help you bridge that gap between daytimes. I would love to see what you come up with, what your other tests come up with on this, and then how you end up implementing it for that purpose. Yeah, we'll see. It, it might work or it might be a total failure. Either way, I'll have learned something in the end. Absolutely. Wendy, it looks like you have an update on the fitness tracker that you started playing with. What is this update? Yes, I did. So last time I was talking about how I had went ahead and confirmed my email address and something along the lines of possibly being able to contribute some exercises to it. Now today, that exercise tab is 
actually populated. So last week when we were talking, I pulled it up. Nothing was actually there. This week when I open that up, you can sort exercises by category. You can sort exercises by equipment. And then you can also sort them by the muscle being worked. I really, really like this overall goal. Now I tried to contribute an exercise and I can't yet. So the stipulations are you need to confirm your email address and have an account with them, a profile essentially for at least 21 days. And I'm sure that's to weed out any of the people that are just jumping on to put some not nice things on for exercises or whatnot. I wish that you could edit exercises because I've seen some that I know under a different name. And I think a great thing that could be added to this is known by other names. So when you're doing a search for it, when you're building out your overall exercises, that you can still find that workout instead of having the same exact exercise in there under multiple names, just be able to have one exercise under the same name. I can also see where they're having issues because instead of somebody writing out barbell, for equipment needed, they just have a B. So now in order to find barbell exercises, not only are you going to have to click B, but you'll also have to use barbell itself in order to find those. So there are some downsides in having other people contribute to the exercises, but this makes it so much more functional. I'll be able to get some of the other exercises in there that I really, really like that weren't in there before. If you haven't checked this out yet and you would like an open source workout checker, make sure you're jumping in, getting this, and then eventually contributing to the overall exercise list that is available for it. Even something like an alias function, even if it's locally yes. held, that'd be cool. Obviously, if it's on the part of the database, that's probably just as helpful or more helpful. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's very cool. I'm interested in seeing then what you end up contributing to the project overall. And I don't know if you want to send some screenshots at some point, that'd be interesting to see. I suppose I could try it too, but I'm a little bit funny about how I like workout. It maybe be good for me. Yeah, we Change were talking about your spreadsheet from last week, which I think you could possibly incorporate something like that into this overall workout tracker. I am currently using a spreadsheet base for my workouts and then still writing them down in my tablet. The spreadsheet itself is more for helping to calculate what the different percentages are because I'm using weights based on my one rep max for many of the main lifts and then the accessory lifts in order to improve overall strength. I talked last week, that is one thing that I would love to see eventually integrated into this open source application, being able to input what one rep maxes are, and then use those as you are creating workouts to auto-populate a weight. Now, I don't have partial weights, so if something says 51.25 pounds, Obviously, I don't have that, so I'm going to round down to 50. If something is closer to the 5, then I'm going to round up to that. So it's not going to be perfect, but at least having an autofill start point for where I am working with those would be absolutely fantastic. So right now, that's where the spreadsheet is filling this in. It seems like they're doing a lot of work on this application 
to be honest, I can only see it getting better from here. And then I think over time they can go through and potentially clean up some of the places where people have not fully put in barbell or there can be a way eventually where we're combining different exercises that are the exact same thing. They're just known under different names. Like you said, some sort of alias function to make it easier to find what you're looking for, to make the database more efficient so that you don't have all of these pages, tabs, sections in the workout area. They're just being full of doubles but absolutely awesome work on this. I would like to be able to use it even more than I am now. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'd like to hear uh, updates as they come along. I will definitely let you know as I continue to use it and play with it. And then when I go through the process of adding some of my own. Matt, there's a lot of talk around here on whether or not you're a nice guy, whether or not you have feelings. Now, this game this week is called Soul Hackers kind of fits in all of that fun jargon we give you. Oh, uh, huh? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I might have a harder feelings, but I do have a soul, I think. <laughs> so this is a dungeon-crawling Japanese role-playing game. Shock, surprise, I know. It comes to nobody as far as that. <laughs> but cool thing with this is it came out back in August, I believe, and this worked day one on Linux, Steam Deck, take your pick. It worked on both. It's just one of those kind of fun games where it's, you know, you, you go around and fight monsters and all the other typical like Japanese RPG stuff that you would normally do. But it's the cast of characters and kind of the interesting cyberpunk aesthetic that it has. Definitely a rated M game. Shock, surprise there. Also, do keep that in mind about themes and language and all, violence and all the other stuff. It's just a fun game as far as I'm concerned. Uh, this is probably the one game I've actually been able to put significant amount of time into when I do have time to play games. Little expensive, you know, it's like 60 bucks. Um, there is a deluxe edition. I think it's $89.99. So it's on the high end, but this fits more into what I would generically buy on day one for me. And it, if you are looking for a Persona 5 style game, this is the closest you're going to get to Persona 5 without buying Persona 5 until it comes out in a couple... Well, it'll be a couple of days as of this recording, but it will have already been released by the time it's recording's out. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure like what you're trying to accomplish in the game. Is it, so it's a fighting game-ish thing, or it's a dungeon crawler, so you... It's a dungeon crawler that you end up seeing all your enemies, and you can pre-attack, and then you go into the typical um, Japanese like turn-based kind of oh, okay. action combat. The closest game that most people might understand what this is related to it feels very much like tokyo mirage sessions sharp fe encore yeah i know what that is for those that know <laughs> the genre i'm saying it's that type of third person dungeon exploration game with a lot of grinding there is stories for grinding for those that don't know, understand what that means is just like a lot of leveling up a lot of tedious repetition of fighting it's one of those kind of games but there's a story hook to kind of get you through that grinding aspect of the game you'll either like it or you won't it's available on a bunch of different platforms obviously like i said it worked on the steam deck uh i'm 
getting anywhere between 55 to 60 on high settings for the game. Not bad for a day one release. Uh, you can get it on Switch, PS4, and Xbox insert version of Xbox here. So it's available on pretty much everything. Except for the Commodore 64. Let me rephrase this. So it's not available for everything. So, Nate, actually it is available <laughs> for the Commodore 64 if it's the imposter. Oh, okay. Well, well played. Then that'd be on Steam. It's a fun game. It's just one of those... You have to really like the genre. If you're into anime and that kind of stuff, you'll probably like the game. The art style on this one seems to be a little bit more angular in faces than some of the other JRPG games that you've shared. And it's kind of funny looking in the tags. This one also has cyberpunk. So it is, does it have a cyberpunk feel to it? Yeah, like the neon colors and kind of like the vibe for like the visual aesthetic is there's a cyberpunk vibe to it. The short version of the story is you are a you're a human that was created by an AI, which it's Japanese RPGs. Just go with it. <laughs> It makes no sense as far as that. That you're out to stop and help save the world from ending. That, that's kind of the whole crux of it. But there is very much a cyberpunk vibe because uh, that does play into like what's a soul and all the other kind of stuff. You know, the typical man machine soul stuff that you see in a lot of sci-fi stuff. Not a very realistic game, I think. There's no way somebody's running around in stilettos and fighting. That's just not, there's no way. It's not <laughs> meant to be realistic, let's be real. Seriously. This is also coming from you, Nate, who, never mind, I won't, not gonna go there. Not gonna go there. <laughs> <laughs> is that in relation to the topic from last week that we cannot actually share out loud on the show? Yes. Okay. I'm not sure which inappropriate topic that was. <laughs> one of several. <laughs> the one that had clips. Uh, I'll think about it. The very last screenshot that's available on Steam, I think it's a very interesting screenshot. It shows the cast of characters, or at least some of the cast of characters, all sitting around a table and eating in what looks like it could be a living room, but they're having more like a fancy looking dinner. And then in the background, they have all these screens. I know. I just think it's a really strange juxtaposition between the foreground and the background. It's, a lot of the art style is definitely very neat with this, but I don't know. I don't think it's my style of genre. Nate, it's too new. It came out in August of this year. Oh yeah, we got to wait 30 years. So if we're still doing this show in 30 years, I'll probably be just getting around to it. So in 2052. Yeah. Gotcha. And then maybe it'll run on the Commodore 64. Mm, maybe. It even still runs at that time. Be a 50-year-old computer. They keep putting out new versions of the, you know, Amiga OS and stuff. So, you know, who knows? Who knows? Now it's your turn to toss in your two cents on today's topic. Hit the discourse forum and drop us a line under this video or use the contact form by visiting tuxdigital.com contact. If you'd like to hang out with us on our preferred social media platforms, you can see the links at the bottom of the show description. For other great shows like Hardware Addicts, Game Series, Linux Saloon, and more, go to tuxdigital.com. You can show off your love for your favorite podcasts and shows by visiting the Tux Digital merch store and grab yourself some awesome swag like the gamer-centric I pause my game to be here shirt. Or you can join hashtag Team Wendy with some sinister Wendy merch. She's really evil. As always, we thank you for joining us and we'll be back next week with another awesome episode of Lennox Out Loud. Until then, keep the banner friendly, the conversation somewhat on topic, and have fun doing it. And no one will believe you that I'm evil. I'm so nice. Lies. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha